Well, as always, a wonderful, beautiful time to worship you, with you this morning. We're so privileged to study His Word together, learn a little more of the story of who we are. As you know by now, we are in part two of our study of NBC identity. The first answer to the question of who we are is that we are Christian. The second answer to that is that we are Protestant. And as Protestants, we are looking at the story of the Protestant Reformation, particularly those five theological standards that arose out of the Reformation, the five soli of the Reformation. The first we looked at, number one, if you followed us, was sola fide, that is justification or salvation by faith alone, not works, not ritual, not ceremony. Individual faith alone is what justifies. We are declared righteous before God, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is applied to us, applied to our account when we have faith in Him. Second, we looked at the Protestant idea of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, and by that we learned that about the reestablishment in the Christian's life, in the life of the church, that the Bible is the final authority. The Bible is the final authority in the life of the church, in the life of the Christian. And all, all church leaders, all church councils, all traditions are to be under the Bible and therefore obeyed if consistent with Scripture. Just like the Christian life, Scripture is the center. Then last week, third, we looked at sola gratia, that is, salvation is an act of God's grace alone. God's grace is not some thing that you obtain through rituals and means. God's grace is a description of His character towards us in terms of His saving activity. It is God's grace that is on display and is freely giving of Himself to redeem corrupt humanity. Now, today we're going to be looking at number four. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, and we'll be looking at the fourth of the five soli, solus Christus, through Christ alone, or sometimes people say simply solo Christo, Christo which is Christ alone. Let me read our text today. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll begin in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the Word of God. One of the most obvious differences between Protestant Christianity and Catholicism is the veneration of saints. 
In the Catholic tradition, not every Christian is a saint, but only particular people who are canonized. There are specific things, specific things that they've done, accomplished in their lives that would qualify them to be canonized as saints in the Catholic Church. And these saints then in the Roman Catholic tradition are venerated. They are lifted up. Of course, the most well-known, most venerated of all the saints is Mary, the mother of Jesus. What we find as you dig into Catholic tradition is what's really said about Mary and really worshipped in regard to Mary is applied to all those canonized saints. You'll remember Luther in the storm as he struggled with a number of things in his life and was caught in this storm. Remember who he prayed to? Of course, it was St. Anne, ostensibly the mother of Mary, whom the Catholic Church teaches also immaculately conceived, and she conceived Mary just as Mary would Jesus. Of course, this is nowhere in Scripture. It is a fantasy, really, to support Catholic, Catholic Mariolatry. But early on, Luther, like any good Catholic, worshipped and prayed to these saints and venerated them, venerated the Pope, idolized them. Even Leo initially. But as time went on, Luther began to see what Scripture said and see really the reality behind this corrupt system. And as time went on, those, those 10 years, really from 1510 to 1520, Luther went from worship of the Roman Catholic saints and the leaders to questioning them, then to disenchantment and disappointment, and then finally seeing them not just as something that's disappointing, but seeing them as deceptive minions of Satan. The Protestants led by Luther would eventually see the Pope as not just someone who's confused or someone who's deceived, but as someone who is a type of antichrist. In fact, if you, if you look back at the early Protestant confessions of faith, the first several hundred years of, of Protestant statements of faith, almost all of them included some statement about the Pope being a type or a picture of the coming antichrist the false Savior. I do want you to get this clear, though, in your mind. Luther and his followers never initiated or supported violence against Roman Catholics or the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, when the Reformation started to turn violent, and it did, uh, sadly, after Luther was in his time up in uh, the castle of Wartburg, he, he came back to Wittenberg, and he, he, he saw this thing turning violent and people picking up arms and trying to actually injure and hurt and torture and punish the Roman Catholic Church as they had done uh, the Protestants. And Luther was the one who stood up on behalf of the Catholic Church and said, no more, we cannot have this violence. I believe in certain contexts, Luther could have worked with Roman Catholics for the greater good. However, he did not see Catholicism as just another viable Christian denomination or some group that basically had the, the truth of the gospel right or basically had the, the truth of Scripture right or salvation right, not in any way. He, along with all the Protestants, came to the firm belief that not only was the Catholic Church teaching falsely, it was, a, it was a, an institution of massive, wide-scale corruption loaded with all kinds of intrigue, power moves, scandal of the highest order going all the way up to the top. Of course, in the last couple of decades, we've seen this even in the Catholic Church of today. 
There's too much money to be made. There's too much power to be obtained. There's too much influence and prestige to be had. And so it's often a magnet, the Catholic Church, often it is a, a magnet for corrupt people. Are there earnest, sincere priests? Are there earnest, sincere Catholics? Of course there are. There are many, I'm sure, though they are deceived about the nature of salvation and the nature of Scripture. I'm sure there are plenty earnest, sincere people. Luther was one of them for a while. But the institution as a whole, like the gambling industry or politics or high finance, presents too great a temptation for corrupt people. And these corrupt people invade and began to take the high places just as they did in the time of Luther. Luther's discovery of this, along with his growing knowledge of the Bible, was what led him to confess, ultimately, solo Christo, Christ alone, or through Christ alone, solus Christus. We don't look to the saints. We don't look to the priests. We don't look to the popes. We look to Christ alone for salvation. Christ alone is our high priest, Hebrews 4.14. Christ alone is our mediator, our passage today, 1 Timothy 2.5. Christ alone is our redeemer, Galatians 3.13. Christ alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19.16. Therefore, Christ alone is worthy of our prayers, our adoration, and our worship. Well, as I've been doing, let me give you a little more of the Protestant story here. Our story explains who we are, explains a little bit of our spiritual and theological DNA here at NBC so that we can know our identity a little bit better in terms of being in Christ alone. One of the interweaving narratives of the Reformation begins with a young aristocrat by the name of Albrecht. Albrecht was sort of a prince. They called him a margrave of an area called Brandenburg. Albrecht, the the margrave of Brandenburg. And you need to know a little bit about how the Roman Empire worked in that day to understand Albrecht and how he got sucked up into or actually perpetuated the corruption of the church and the empire of that day. The emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, was chosen by seven They call them electors, kind of like what we call the electorate today, only a lot different in a lot of ways, but they had an electorate. They had seven electors. Four of them were what they call provincial electors, meaning they would be princes or kings or margraves, and then three of them would be high positions in ecclesiology. They'd be ecclesiastical electors. They would be bishops and priests. They would be cardinals. They would be leaders in the Catholic Church. Albrecht's older brother was a higher margrave, a higher prince than him, and and by being a higher prince, by virtue of being uh, the lead margrave of Brandenburg, he actually was one of those seven electors. And Albrecht looked at that position longingly, and he thought, you know, if there's a way that I can become an elector too, I'm going to try to find that way. Well, lo and behold, he had an opportunity when the bishop of Mainz was... Uh, suddenly died of illness. And Albrecht thought, you know, the Bishop of Mainz said, he's, a, he's one of the electors. Maybe I can become one of those bishops, the Bishop of Mainz. 
And so Albrecht hatched a plan where, whereby he would bribe his way into becoming a bishop. And that, this is one of the things that you could do back then. You can't do it now in the Catholic Church, but back then it's called simony. If you had enough money, you could just buy a position. You didn't have to go to seminary. You didn't have to go to some kind of training. You didn't have to become a priest or anything like that. You just, if you had enough money, you could buy your way into becoming a, a priest or a bishop or a cardinal. And that's what he thought he could do. He thought, you know, maybe if I get enough money, I can bribe my way into this bishopric and become one of these seven electors along with my brother. Now, usually what would happen is that if a guy wanted to do this, he would pay the Catholic Church, uh, the the Roman Catholic Church as a whole, he would pay the the, the prelates there, and there would be a price for that. Uh, that simony. There would also be a price that the actual parish, the actual church had to pay as well in order to get a new bishop, a new priest. But Albrecht had a number of obstacles, and that made obtaining this particular bishopric expensive. For one, the Mainz parish was, was broke. They had gone through several different uh, uh, leaders, and it cost more and more as they did this, and they got to the point where it just cost too much money for them to be able to afford to to actually pay for another one. The second obstacle that Albrecht had is he was very young. He was only 24 years old, and that was too young according to canon law. The the, the Catholic Church says 24 is too young to be be a bishop. Another problem is, is that he had already purchased another bishopric. He was the bishop of another place. And again, according to canon law, you're not supposed to be a bishop of two different places. And so the price was getting higher and higher as these obstacles sort of mounted for Albrecht. But Albrecht came up with an idea. He wrote a letter to the Pope, Leo X, and he submitted the following idea. He said, first of all, I can go to the bank and I'm going to borrow, and it actually was going to cost millions and millions of dollars. I can go and I can borrow this great amount to purchase this bishopric. He said, then I can hire this guy by the name of Johannes Tetzel, and he can sell an indulgence that will pay not only for the bishopric, but pay back interest to the church and pay back the bank with interest as well. Well, the Pope really wanted money at that time because the Pope was building the St. Peter's Basilica. That's the one with Michelangelo's paintings. He was building this big gaudy chapel in the middle of the Vatican, and he, he wanted money. He thought, you know what, I'll get money from the, from the bishopric. I'll get money, you know, the millions from that, from the bank, and then I'll get all this interest money just flowing in from all these people buying plenary indulgences from Tetzel. And so the Pope himself signed off on this scheme. He said, sure, you can do this. That building he was building was probably worth in the billions at the time, in today's money, and the Pope agreed to do this. So Luther didn't know any of this. Luther did not, was not aware of any of this. In fact, if you read Luther's early letters, Luther thought the esteemed Bishop Albrecht had, had gotten to that position honestly and forthrightly, and he, he wrote him and, and was concerned about Tetzel selling indulgences and was concerned about what was going on. He wrote the Pope and was concerned about this thing. Little did he know this was all a part of their own filthy scheme. On top of that, Luther was discovering that the doctrine of salvation is a salvation that is through Christ alone, solus Christus, not through the church, not through the prelates, not through the corrupt leadership, but in Christ alone. What is that doctrine? Look at our passage here, verse 3 of 2 Timothy 2. 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what we studied some months ago, last year. We studied this is God's moral will. God desires that all come to repentance and all not perish. God's moral will. In this era, it doesn't run uh, uh, consistent with God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is a separate thing. But God's moral will is that all repent and come to eternal life. God wants all people, in terms of His moral will, to be saved from their sin, to be saved from His wrath, to be saved to eternal life by knowledge of the truth. What is that truth? Verse 5, this is the gospel truth, saved by the knowledge of what, Paul? Verse 5, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. So my first point, really it's a parenthetical point. I want to make this parenthetical point every time I have an opportunity, is this, we need a mediator. Clearly, this passage teaches that we as humans need a mediator. And I always like to make this point because I think people generally assume they don't need a mediator. They just sort of go to God and they hold up their feeble works and sort of assume that they sort of have affirmation, affirmative feelings towards God and towards Jesus. Lord, surely that's enough. That'll get me in. And, and, and they sort of hope. They don't really think too much in terms of a mediator. Clearly this passage and, of course, the ones we read earlier teach us that we need a mediator. People don't understand the nature of their depravity. They don't understand the nature of God's holiness. They don't understand the nature of their, their, their feeble good works that are really just stained with sin. They stand before God. They don't understand. They stand before God naked, rightly condemned by God, and they need a mediator. If you're not a believer, if you have not repented, had faith in Jesus Christ, this is a starting point. You admit. You admit your absolute need. You admit you need a mediator. You need a go-between. You need a savior. You're, Jesus is not just some good teacher, not just some moral guy who did some good things and died for a good reason. No, Jesus is the one who establishes a relationship between you and God. You have no relationship with God unless you come to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. If you stood before God on your own, it would be immediately condemned forever. The wages of sin is what? Death. Separation from God for eternity, for eternity. And so you need someone to stand up in your place. You need a representative, a mediator. And you need someone that holds both perfection in terms of human perfection that's required to enter heaven, and you need someone who also paid the penalty for your sin. And who is that person? Well, that person is Jesus Christ. And so if you've not repented, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your mediator, you can trust Him today. Just surrender everything. Say in your heart, God will hear you. Lord, I trust Christ. I turn to Him. I repent of everything, even, even my own self-righteousness. I trust in Christ. If you're evangelizing someone, if you're a believer, you're evangelizing someone, make this clear. They, they need a mediator. They need someone to, to stand before God on their behalf. If you're giving someone your testimony, explain this. I needed Christ. As you pray, as you worship, as you come, even in your relationships, ladies and gentlemen, bear this thought, I need a mediator. I need Christ. 
I need someone to represent me. You stood condemned, but in your place condemned He stood. Galatians 3.13, I mentioned earlier, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. You need that. And you live every day of your life with that understanding. So even though that's sort of assumed here, it's parenthetical here, I want us to remember the vital importance of this truth. We need a mediator. Well, what does this passage actually say in terms of solus Christus? Three things. We'll do B, C, and D, or really this is points one, two, and three, but following the outline here. Number one, Christ alone is the mediator. Christ alone is the mediator. This is pretty clear here. You you can't read this passage and come up with some other interpretation. Surprisingly, though, people have. What does it say? There is one mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It should surprise you to know that in Catholic Church doctrine, though there are places that you can find that it would say, yes, we agree with this verse, there is one mediator, you can also find places in Catholic doctrine that teach quite the opposite. In fact, if you read their defense of praying to saints, particularly Mary, oftentimes what the Catholic Church will say is is something like this, well, it's just like asking a friend to pray for you. You're just asking a really godly person, Mary, to, to pray for you. That's all it is. Now, aside from the fact that nowhere in the Bible are we instructed to ask dead people to pray for us, there are a number of problems with this. And if you do much digging, what you find is they don't just think of these saints, particularly Mary, as just a good or godly friend. They actually worship Mary. They actually worship these saints. And they worship Mary particularly as as not just a really good godly saint, but as someone who is the co-redeemer, co-mediator with Christ. The Catholic Church says, quote, it is morally impossible for those to be saved who neglect devotion to the Blessed Virgin, unquote. The Catholic Church teaches, quote, it is the will of God that all graces should pass through her hands, that no creature obtained any grace from God save according to the dispensation of His Holy Mother. In other words, all graces are obtained through Mary. Go to Mary for that dispensation of grace. Pope Pius IX said in his 1849 encyclical, On this hope we chiefly rely that the most blessed virgin who raised the heights of merits above all choirs of angels to the throne of deity being holy, sweet, and full of graces has ever delivered to the Christian people from calamities of all sorts. In other words, in hard times, in difficult times, you don't need to go to Jesus, someone who's even holy up to the throne of deity, who understands your hardships is none other than Mary. Look to her for those graces. All throughout Catholic literature, of course, you have God, you have the Holy Father, but you also have Mary, who is called the what? Holy Mother, the co-redeemer, the co-mediatrix. The bishop of Gallipoli assert that Mary, with Christ, is the co-mediator, in contrast to this very passage. The worship of idols and paintings and visuals and shrines to Mary are, this is a multi-billion dollar industry in the Catholic world. 
You add to Mary all the other saints and all the shrines and idols and, and what these particular saints do for, for you and why you would pray to any particular saint. It doesn't look much different than Buddhism or Hinduism with all these different gods or perhaps even the ancient world where the Jews lived in Canaan where each god did something different and you go to particular gods for particular needs. Well, against that demonic system, Paul tells us, Christ alone is the mediator. Mary was just like us, a, a sinner. In fact, you see in, in Jesus' own ministry, Mary doubted Jesus, even contradicting the very revelation of God that God gave her. She, she came to a point of doubt. She challenged her own son in defiance of that revelation. She knew she was a sinner. We see that in Luke chapter 1. She prays to God, her Savior. And looking at Scripture, it's likely that she did eventually believe in Christ. I believe she's probably in heaven, completely abhorred about the fact that humans have turned her into an object of worship. Christ alone is our mediator. Now, how is Christ our mediator? Second, or C, Christ alone is the ransom. Christ alone is the ransom. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Now, I'll let you guys debate limited atonement, figure out if this is, it's a ransom for all, a ransom for many. But my point is that He alone is the ransom. He alone paid the price to set us free. Luther said that before He was saved... He was, quote, held captive under the power of the devil. Now, understand, he was a priest. He was someone who was very focused, as we learned, on his holiness, on his personal walk. He was someone who, who did all the prayers, who went to confession, who, who did everything he was supposed to do. He, he obtained indulgences, plenary indulgences. He did everything he's supposed to do, and yet he says, I was held captive under the power of the devil. I was condemned to death, entangled in sin and blindness. The devil came and led us into disobedience, to sin, to death and misfortune. As a result, we, speaking of all unbelievers, laid under God's wrath and displeasure, sentenced to eternal damnation that we had merited and deserved. There were no resources, no help, no comfort for us until this only and eternal Son of God in His unfathomable goodness had mercy on us because of our misery and distress and came from heaven to help us. He alone has snatched us. He has snatched us poor lost creatures from the jaws of hell, won us, made us free, and restored us to the Father's favor and grace. Luther would go on to say, no one, not even an angel of heaven, could make restitution for the infinite and irreparable injury and appease the eternal wrath of God which we had merited by our sins, except that eternal person, the Son of God Himself. And He could do it only by taking our place, assuming our sins, and answering for them as though He Himself were guilty of them. You see, Jesus alone 
is our ransom. Why would we look to anyone else? Why would we look to any other saint? I mean, we can learn from saints, we can learn from great people, we can learn from godly people, but why would we look to them as though they are our mediator, as though they are our ransom, when Jesus Christ alone is a ransom? And I'll tell you this, if someone comes here, even if I myself stand up and preach something different, may I be accursed. That is not the gospel. Christ alone is the mediator. Christ alone is the ransom. Well, if this is true, then number three, or D, Christ alone is the center of the gospel. Verse 5 again. Again, this is the, the small form of the gospel. This is, this is the gospel that saves. He's, he's talking about how God wills, it's His moral will to save everyone. They come to the knowledge of the truth. What truth, Paul? Verse 5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Stop right there. Christ alone is the center of the good news that we teach and preach. Christ alone makes up the good news. The good news is not that we have saints or mediators. The good news is not that Mary is a kind person. The good news is that Christ alone is our mediator and our ransom and our Lord. What did we just sing? Christ alone is our hope. Christ alone is our song. Christ alone is our cornerstone. Christ alone took on flesh. Christ alone is God's gift of love. Christ alone satisfied God's wrath. Christ alone rose up from the grave. Christ alone stands in victory. Christ alone bought us with His blood. Christ alone commands our destiny. And so here in the power of Christ alone, we stand. We don't hope in a church. We don't hope in a pastor. We don't hope in Martin Luther. We don't hope in any apostle. We don't hope in Mary. Our faith is in Christ alone. I was reading an article by one of, our, one of my former seminary professors, and he made the case that all the other soli, all the other four soli rest on the doctrine of solus Christus. We're in a scripture alone that tells us the story of Christ and defines this for us, that Christ alone, it's in Christ alone that we find salvation. It is Christ alone who is the embodiment and establishment of God's grace alone for salvation. It is Christ alone in whom we have faith alone for justification. It is Christ alone that enables us to finally live for God's glory alone. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2 that he preached nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. And I don't think that means that the only, thing that, the only sermon that Paul ever preached was the story of Christ dying on the cross. I, I don't think he means that. If you look at Paul's uh, writings, you know that he couldn't have done that, that he wouldn't just simply preach the story of Christ dying. I do believe what he means is the center of all Scripture, of all the things that he taught, the center of it, the thing that binds it all together, is Christ crucified and resurrected. Everything you do in ministry, everything you preach in ministry, everything uh, Paul did in terms of his ministry, 
All the discipleship and admonishment and the preaching that he did all revolved around one person, Christ alone. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who would live our lives as though that were true. After Luther was saved and began to write and preach about Christ alone, this became a huge threat to the leaders in the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, this threatened their authority over people. They had people looking to them for salvation. Can you imagine the kind of power you would feel if you, if you knew that it was up to you to either damn people or bring people into heaven? And that's what the church genuinely holds, even today, that they have that power. And, and here comes this guy saying, Christ alone, Christ alone, not popes, not councils, not traditions, not Mary, Christ alone. This is very reminiscent of Jesus himself as he, as he preached the truth on the countryside and, and suddenly all the leaders, all the religious people who had authority, suddenly they felt very threatened, much like John the Baptist. As they began to preach gospel truth, there was suddenly this fear from all the religious authorities. Well, the Pope was indeed enraged by Luther's preaching by Luther's doctrine. And after several attempts of ensnaring Luther, he called them debates. The, the, the church tried to engage Luther in a several different debates, but they never could really pin him down. Luther was always a few steps ahead, and the Pope finally issued a decree. It's called a papal bull. It's a statement. It's an edict. He issued this papal bull, and it's called the Exerge Domine, which is translated from the Latin, Arise, O Lord. And basically, in that decree, he says, Lord, I want you to arise and exterminate this pig who's running wild in, the, in, in your vineyard, who's, who's coming and trashing your church with his doctrine. The Pope went through and identified 41 errors he believed that Luther had made in his writings and demanded in this papal bull that... Luther recant of these things. And this decree, by form of a scroll, finally made it to Luther at Wittenberg, which by that time, uh, the people of Wittenberg had followed Luther. He was their champion. They had found salvation. They had found joy. They had found a new community in Christ there. And they paraded out this papal bull, and everyone crowded at the city square, And Luther spoke, he said to the Pope, it's better that I should die a thousand times that I should retract one syllable of the condemned articles. He said to the Pope, I ask you, ignorant Antichrist, do you think that with your naked words you can prevail against the armor of Scripture? And then Luther took the papal bull and they had a fire burning there and he threw the bull into the fire to the cheers of the town. And this was a straw that broke the camel's back. It was in response to this action that he was called to the Diet of Worms where he would face the Pope and the Emperor and others. What gave Luther his boldness? What gave Luther his strength? Mary? Anne? Christ alone. Christ alone empowered him. Christ alone, who is our mediator, our ransom, our final judge, but also our friend 
and Savior. Luther's love for, adoration to, and preaching of Christ alone is what emboldened him against the dark world around him. Let's pray that we have the same kind of devotion. Father, we do pray that we would live in Christ alone, that this would be the theme not just of our salvation or for some moment in time way back in our history, but this would be the theme of our everyday, Christ alone, that we would love Christ, that we would demonstrate our, our passion for Christ, that we would seek to understand Christ and His activity on our behalf, that we would look into it and dig deep into it and study it and learn it and follow Christ. Help us honor and glorify and worship Christ alone all the days of our lives. For it is by Him that we have come into the kingdom because of Him that we can stand before You not condemned, but welcomed. And so, Lord, we give You all the glory because of Christ, because of what Your Spirit also has done in our hearts to see this truth of Christ alone. Give us the same kind of devotion that Luther had and many other Christians have had through the years. And Lord, for those who have not yet repented, I pray that they would see Christ alone as the answer for their needs. I pray that they would not try to mix it with any kind of error, mix it with any kind of worship of any other false god or any other saint even, that they would worship and have faith in Christ alone and be saved today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.